Welcome back to The Drip, the podcast where four academics of color sit around in coffee shops and discuss great books. Each episode will feature a free-flown conversation about one book that leads us to broader conversations about race, culture, and politics, all the things that keep us gabbing when we're hanging out in coffee shops. And our new podcast home is the Kahoot Coffee Bar in St. Paul. And we're outside on this beautiful, lovely June day. July. Oh, July. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what day it is. We're so excited about talking about books. This is summer for <laughs> academics. We don't know what month true, it is. True. Um, I'm Anita, the host of the show, and I teach in the Department of Educational Studies at Carleton College. And I'm Crystal Motes, and I teach African American history at McAllister College. And I'm Adriana Estel. I teach English and American Studies at Carleton College. I'm Todd Lawrence. I teach African-American literature and culture and folklore at the University of St. Thomas in the English department. So in this episode, which is our second episode and our two episodes special on young adult novels, we are discussing Angie Thomas's The Hate You Give. And just FYI, the first one we discussed was Justina Ireland's The um, Dread Nation. So Angie Thomas was born and raised in Jackson, Mississippi. And in interviews, she's actually talked about how she grew up really close to Medgar Evans' house and how her mom actually heard the gunshot that killed the civil rights activist. Mm-hmm. And Thomas has talked about how she wrote this particular book in response to the killings of unarmed black people, including Oscar Grant, Trayvon Martin, Tamir Rice, Mike Brown, and Sandra Bland. And obviously, sadly, we could add many more names to that. Um, so the book is actually being made into a movie starring the amazing Amanda Stenberg, and it's set to be released in October. So we're excited that we get a chance to discuss the book, and maybe we'll plan a drip podcast outing to see the movie in the fall. <laughs> Um, and before we dig in, just a reminder, as always, that when we discuss our books, we will talk about everything. Everything. Yeah. Everything. <laughs> everything. So consider this your perpetual, universal, all-encompassing spoiler alert. In other words, we're all about spoilers and not about summaries. That's right. And I think we have a lot to say about this book. We were having sort of a short pre-conversation about it. Um, so let's get started. So um, I thought that I would start us off by mentioning that a police union in South Carolina has challenged the inclusion of this book on a high school's summer reading list. And the reading list is just sort of a recommendation of books that they want the students to choose, and students get to choose which ones. And the police union apparently described it as, quote, almost an indoctrination of distrust of police. So obviously we believe in sort of reading and discussing books and not banning them. So just curious to start us off by asking, what response would we have to that kind of description of the book? Again, I think it's absurd. <laughs> Why? <laughs> <laughs> um, I I I don't think that uh, maybe the that um, the police union maybe is referring to. Well, first of all, most of the time when people launch these kind of like generalized um, criticisms of a book like this, they haven't really read the book. It's true of movies. It's true of novels. It's true all across the board. Usually, they haven't read it. Um, if they have read this book, I maybe it's because you know of how the uh, officer is referred to in the book, you know, by his badge mm-hmm. number throughout the book. I'm not really sure if there's this idea that there's this sort of dehumanizing of the officer, but um, if if that is if that is the case, I would I will ask you guys, close to you guys. I mean, I think that is done because in uh, contemporary media coverage of 
um, incidences such as this police involved shootings, it is usually the victim who is dehumanized and who is decontextualized and who we know very little about. And it's the police officer who we know the name, we know the background of. Media tends to sympathize with police and police officers uh, individually. Um, and I think that this book might sort of invert that a little bit. But it's, it's one book, and I don't think that the book is an anti-police book, but by any stretch of the imagination. So I'll, I'll throw that to you guys. I mean, after all, the main protagonist's uncle, right? It's right. her uncle who mm -hmm. is a police. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, yeah. I didn't. Yeah. I didn't feel that uh, this book was anti-police, but I think uh, thinking about the police union um, and their response to this book, I think it's simply it could be simply the fact that this is a story about a, a police uh, person shooting an um, unarmed black person. Right. And so just by that simple fact, then this has to be a book that is, um, you know, attack antagonistic to police and I, I agree I mean I think you have to read the book um, and then once you read the book you can see that that is an unfounded um, crit critique of the book yeah and just want to quickly mention that the other book that they objected to is also about a police killing and it's called All American Boys by Jason Reynolds and uh, Brendan Keeley and that actually is an interesting book but it goes back and forth between the voice of a black boy and a white boy kind of dealing with hmm. the police shooting hmm. so hmm. yeah if I could add, too, I just think that um, we need to get away from uh, you know, this idea that when we talk about something like this, that, we're, that anyone's trying to vilify any one particular person, right? Um, the idea that if we talk about issues in policing, specifically with regard to black bodies or the bodies of people of color, the killing of people of color, does not mean that we are trying to vilify right. individual police. This is a, 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 a systemic issue, a structural exactly. issue. I was talking to actually a, a woman who, um, whose son is a police officer, and she said to me, um, we weren't talking about this subject specifically, but she said, you know, my son finds it really hard. He's a, he's a white person, a white man. He finds it really hard because um, people don't treat him like a human being. They just treat mm -hmm. him like um, he's like every other police officer or some police officer they've encountered who treated them badly. Mm. And I said, you know, that's tr that's funny because that's the way the police treat me. They mm. treat me not like an individual person, but like mm. the worst black person they've ever met in their life. All that attaches to me. Right. Um, so those are the kind of things that we need to think about. Why does that happen? Why did the police see me that way? Mm -hmm. Why do we see the police that, that way? way? Or certain people see the police yeah. that mm -hmm. way. Um, there's a whole group of people probably that don't see the police that way. That think the police are there to protect and serve. Um, but uh, that's not been my experience mm -hmm. entirely. I mean, I've had a lot of fine experiences with police, but I've had some bad ones. And if I'm going to like think it through and really think about my relationship with the police, I have to work to overcome the, what, the sort of stigma of those um, experiences and how that sort of um, fixes in my brain how I think about them. But I feel like even how you explained it as this kind of equivalency like doesn't make sense to me, right? It's like if a police officer is basically treating you as like the worst encounter they've ever had with a black person, that they treat every white person then as like the worst encounter they've ever had with a white person, well, right? Because no, I feel no. like right because I feel like it's not equivalent no. there, right? right. It's well, like, that's that's like a function of, of race in America, right? right. That mm -hmm. that uh, for for African Americans and other people of color, yeah. the negative characteristics, uh, popular characteristics right. or stereotypes right. attached to individual black people, and 
a big part of white privilege is not having that happen to you right. as a white person. Exactly. As, as a white person, you get to be individual, an individual. While black people, we get we are grouping. We are a grouping. We're having, this is wind noise because we're outside and the wind has started to blow. So if you hear a rumbling in the back. It's, it's not our the, stomachs. Because <laughs> they just got done eating some really delicious bars. Yes. <laughs> so no one is hungry, but this is just the wind. So it's going to be cool. But I'm trying to, okay. Uh, yeah, I yeah. wanted to get back to the book because I, I think back it's to actually, the book. <laughs> I, I think it's like an incredibly conservative depiction of police violence mm -hmm. and about the response. I mean, so there there is a response. There is a quest for uh, for justice. Um, and eventually, right, like that, that story, um, you, you know, the cop is not indicted, is not found to be responsible uh, by the system. Um, and of course, there's anger over that. But but more than that, like more than the story arc, which I think kind of like confirms the institutional power of the police, there's a way in which um, this kind of story locates the danger of police in individual bodies, right? Individual problem police, as opposed to in the institution of policing per se. Mm -hmm. um, and you see that throughout the novel, but like I was struck like, uh, you know, at the point when we're dealing with riots in the street with protests um, and on page 435, I'm on, I'm on my Kindle, so like hopefully it's about right. Um, let's see. She says, uh, her dad says, um, they're calling you brave, but you know that one network got a complaint saying you put them cops in danger. Mm -hmm. I didn't have a problem with those cops. I had a problem with that tear gas can, mm -hmm. and they threw it first. And there's part of that that's like a teenager talking back and saying, like, the problem's the tear can, right? Like, mm -hmm. the problem's like this large system but mostly it's like I don't have a problem with those cops mm -hmm. like that sentence comes out and it's kind of it's there mm -hmm. but it's not it's more than that right I mean you were sort of alluding to earlier when we were talking about it the fact that her uncle's a cop yep. right? right so I feel like the book kind of goes out of its way in some ways to be like there's all these different perspectives that we could have on the police there's you know Uncle Carlos who's a cop mm -hmm. and he's a good guy he's a good he, cop and he protects young a black girl right like her protagonist and so I feel like in some ways it's like both this like, yes, it's not, you know, it's kind of a rotten individual kind of thing, but also in some ways talking about there could be good people within these institutions right. as well. So I think it does it in a lot of different ways. I feel like the whole story is actually really set up in this, in this way that um, feels very honest, right, in terms of narrative tone, et cetera, but also really dichotomous and problematic um, in that we start off with this uh, danger that is at the party comes from mm -hmm. the neighborhood, right, that is, um, you know, as our current president would say, black on black violence, mm -hmm. right, this danger of the guns uh, that fellow teenagers might have, um, and the party, and that the, there is a shooting at that party. Right. And then as she leaves the party with her high school friend, um, you know, there's the danger of being black and being stopped by the police, especially as a young black man. Mm -hmm. um, and it starts off with that, and the, the, the novel ends with that same kind of like dichotomous danger, right? Mm -hmm. Where we have the danger of the police in the street, mm -hmm. um, and, but we also still have the danger of this gang, right? Um, and the way it's interlaced with her family life. 
Yeah, and it's, I mean, interestingly, it's not her high school friend, right? Like, it's a childhood friend, because she doesn't go to the local high, high school, school, which true, is, true. like, part of, like, the narrative yeah. in this about getting away, right? So right. Like getting away from the community, getting away from the violence. And what is right. it that, right, in the end, at the end of the book, right, that they move? And how do we understand that, right? How do we understand? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I see Todd making faces. So I'm just curious <laughs> about, like, how do we understand that? Because I think this is interesting thing where she's, like, trying to get at all perspectives in some ways, right? There's, like, the people yeah. who sort of are, like, but you have to stay and like fight and like the mom's like but what about your children mm -hmm. like we should worry about mm -hmm. the children well, mm -hmm. okay so i have two things that are really in my head right now and one is well, that very thing that you're talking about which is a feature of this novel all the way through and i think you're talking about too is is do you think that that might be a kind of feature again that would be more common in a um, young adult mm. uh, book because of the way that a young person might be thinking about their life in terms of these particular binaries that are no. at odds with each other, these kind of tensions, you know. That's interesting. Um, mm. I, I just wonder about that. I, mm. I, I think that might be the case as opposed to, this just seems like um, tedious and boring that it's always this one thing or the other, which I did have some experience or feeling it as I was reading the novel. Mm. So there's that. But then my other thing is, to go back to what Adriana was talking about, this angers me so much that there is this equivalency between yeah. police violence and um, the threat of black violence in the in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. I mean, it seems to me in the end that the the, the the biggest threat is not police violence, but King. Right. And the and the gangs, right? Right. And, yeah. And it's such a kind of like it seems like it's kind of such a one dimensional. I mean, I know there's there's she tries with um, with the uh, the character I can't remember Devante maybe um, mm -hmm. the kid yeah, yeah yes. the kid mm -hmm. and you know tries to show I think um, with the two opposing characters of King and Big Mav um, you know that the that the, that is more complicated than just that the, the gangs are terrible and threatening and blah 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 but to me King is like this cartoonish yeah like, right villain. and he's like everything right like he's right. like gang and he's yeah. a gang violence he's like he beats up you know, domestic kids yeah. Yeah. And like, right so it's like all the yeah. like stereotypes right. kind of in this one character in this one character and it's <laughs> like it's too easy right and then yeah. the, the way that the, the resolution that things are resolved in the novel is to snitch on King and that's like that's basically what you get Mr. Lewis at the beginning snitching on King uh -huh. and everyone's like don't do that right and at the end yeah. they're like he did it and everyone's like yay and then, <laughs> right. and then they move to the suburbs and I'm like what what <laughs> and I actually wrote I want you to you can be my um, wait what page this is on 4.30, but these are the kinds of, like, notes that I wrote in my... <laughs> <laughs> so for those of you who can't see through the radio, it says, this is bullshit. <laughs> and I don't know if I was being too hard or not, but, like, it really, it really bothered me. Um, so th then to hear that criticism yeah. for the police union to me is, like, that's right. more reason why it's absurd, because it's not really about... Uh, I mean, it is about police violence, so don't, don't get me wrong. But it seems to me like the, the focus on what is the real threat to this family mm -hmm. is not police violence, nice. it's their own neighborhood. Right. And that's really troubling to me. I mean, hmm. is it a surprise to any of us that this is a book that's going to be made into a movie? No, it's like it's perf not to, it's perfectly it's perfect yeah. for Hollywood. Yeah. And mm -hmm. it's perfect because it has a white gaze built into it. <laughs> <laughs> right in the way that it sees both the dichotomous kind of yeah. possibilities of black violence yep. and literally through and, Chris and, right. and Chris who yeah. gets like what <laughs> like an ethnographic tour of the ghetto like right. what, what? Oh, <laughs> like 
Like, I, I wanted to be with Star in some of these moments where she's like, I'm worried about what Chris will think, but at that point I was also, really? Like, he, we, he, we already know he's basically a saint because he's the impossible white boy. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. I have yeah. never known. Is he the Kevin of, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Kevin wasn't perfect, so oh. there was that at least. But. Well, I mean, it made me think of that in the sunset, right? I mean, so when we talked about Kindred, we talked about how Kevin's character is sort of both a way for maybe white folks who are reading that to kind of see themselves in there, but mm -hmm. also a way for you know, yeah. her to talk about race in this particular kind of way, that in the same way, right, she needs to sort of have the character of Chris to be able to do some of the, like, exposition that she probably wouldn't have yeah. to do if it was a particular kind of audience that she was imagining. Yes. So I was just kind of curious about... But you need the that. bad white person, right? You need yeah. you need Haley Hallie. Uh, yeah. yeah. You know, who um, is, like, down with her as long as she's apolitical, mm -hmm. you know? Right. But once she gets political, just... But yeah. also makes, like, yeah. calm, you know, sort of casually racist remarks. Casually racist and just wants a pass on right. them, you know? Um, and then we get the good person, Chris, who is so very good that at some point I'm like, who, no, really, who are you? Who are you? Um, he's so good. This is this is where I just had that moment where I'm like, really? What are you also thinking? This is bullshit. This is bullshit. <laughs> oh my gosh, it won't let me like look at the page number. Um, it's when they're in bed together and he, she's like, oh, why don't you want Haley? You know, she's blonde, rich, white. And he says, wait, I prefer beautiful amazing star and like think about that right that w that blonde rich white becomes that. beautiful amazing star uh, yeah. right so that her name replaces white and like what is happening there in that kind of like unwillingness to speak blackness too at the same time that supposedly he's really seeing her and then she is still so upset she wants to finally have sex and he is such a good white boy he won't have sex. Ah. <laughs> I'm love, sorry. I love it. I'd like to go back to that moment. I feel like, in some ways, not to like stand up for Chris or anything. There's no stand up for him. <laughs> there's no good way he can say stand. You stand. Like what would he say? It's like beautiful, amazing black woman. Beautiful, amazing chocolates. You know, like I feel like no, don't, don't I don't think food. he can like. No, right. Yeah, 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 right, right, right. That's a whole other conversation. Yeah. But I just feel like there's also, I think, he's an in a bind in some ways, right? So I feel like I bet if we had like said something that acknowledged her race, we probably would have critiqued him too, right? Sure. right. That's kind of um, true. So just well, we yeah. this is our job is to be impossibly critical. <laughs> 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 and I have to. I mean, I want to. I, I definitely want to say there. I enjoyed this book overall. I mean, there are some really yeah. great things about yeah. it. And, yeah. You know, we were talking in uh, the last episode about this notion, which I'm good. I, I think Crystal said, and I'm going to call it Black Girls at the Center, I think is what I'm going to call it, you know, and I think yeah. that's what you said. This book definitely does that. Mm -hmm. um, I think it has some issues, you know, and, and I can get into some more of those. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, you know, one of the things that it does that's really interesting that I also think is a problem is this, you know, stuck between two worlds thing, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And um, I think, you know, if you're a, if you're a person of color, who went to a college that wasn't, you know, HBCU mm -hmm. or something like that, you've been in this position. Mm -hmm. If you went to a high school that was predominantly white, you've yeah. been in this position. Mm -hmm. So I do, and I've been in that position. So, I mean, I understand um, the, the real concerns and anxieties that she has about being black in white spaces. And I really like that and think that's interesting. 
on the other hand, um, and maybe this again is because it's a, it's a teenager who would think about this in a much different way than I would now maybe, but um, like her working um, strategy for this is, is basically to adopt Will from the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air's kind of mm-hmm. like approach to fish out of water yeah. living. Um, and on one hand, I think, oh, that's kind of a neat, you know, sort of a pop culture uh, illusion. And then, um, then on the other hand, I'm like, but I don't know, Fresh Prince of Bel Air, like, I wouldn't necessarily call that like a racially progressive show right. either, no, right? No. Like, there's there's a lot of ways just because he wears his his uh, school blazer inside that. out. I mean, I know. Will in that show is struggling to maintain, you know, his identity, his Philadelphia identity. But doesn't he become like a minstrel in mm. in uh, mm. California? You know, like mm-hmm. that. I think there's some real sort of troubling mm. uh, aspects of that show, and that that is essentially both the kind of uh, the logic that she sort of follows as a as an outsider in the school, but also that's the glue that holds Chris and her together mm-hmm. because of his also love of of the Fresh Prince. Like that seems like a yeah, problem to no. me. Yeah, Crystal, do you want to jump in? I saw you. Well, I was I was going to um, actually go back to the question of audience um, yeah. it, because um, Justina Ireland in her um, she clearly says her book is for colored girls. Mm-hmm. Mm. I'm not quite sure who the hate you give, who the who her intended audience is, and who she's actually trying to speak to mm-hmm. with this book, and maybe it deserves some kind of discussion. Because it, it maybe that would also help us understand kind of some of the tropes that she plays into in terms of, you know, in terms of this book. Because on the one hand, you know, thinking about Dread Nation and knowing because Justina Ireland tells us that this is this book is for black girls. Um, that's meaningful. But I have no idea who this is for. And thinking about um the critiques we've just lodged against it and also knowing that it's going to become a major motion picture mm. with major you know stars, stars. stars. Star power. i'm thinking it. about i mean I'm, I'm thinking about the age-old questions you know that we raise you know with social justice and capitalism and how do mm-hmm. we reconcile the two and is it important that this story is out there and in the right. hands of young people or you know so I'm just thinking really well, about audience. which young people. Uh, which like, young people, but, right, exactly, right. so which young people. I'll be honest, this, uh-huh. this feels like any of the teen shows that I watch on TV. You watch teen shows? I love teen shows. <laughs> <laughs> I okay. do, I say it okay. without shame. Okay. Yeah, um, they, we start at a party, Okay. and we start with that kind of fish out of water, right, okay. like, do I belong here? Yeah. We start with discussions of, like, drugs mm-hmm. and dancing mm-hmm. and fitting in mm-hmm. um and like i feel like there is all of the kind of discourse that is about who am i yeah and yeah. how do i figure out who i am yeah that really opens it up to any teenager any mm-hmm. but predominantly girls i think mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. although yeah. yeah but i guess i do want to go back to a point about that it's you know a lot of the teen shows don't actually have black girls as like the main protagonist right, right? so what is it that and you said that in some ways right reading these two books together was interesting because it's like mm-hmm. it is sort of a statement about black girlhood right because i was kind of curious about right so yes it is like every other teen book but it has a black girl at the center of the story but what does it mean to have a black so I, I feel like there is a difference right to have a black girl at the center when the gaze doesn't feel so very outsiderish right mm-hmm. like and i do like i said it kind of off the cuff earlier that there's a white gaze in this novel um and i don't know if i totally buy that a hundred percent but i do think that we're allowed to see this world 
um, from outside of blackness somewhat. I agree. I agree because I think if you, I mean, this is another thing that kind of um, annoyed me a little bit about the book was there are a lot of scenes with the family or in the neighborhood um, where she's she's trying to sort of like um, portray this really authentic blackness in the way that people speak and the things that people consume or what they like or what they don't like and you get that a lot like it, it's almost and the reason why it annoyed me is it kind of like you remember those comedians like in the 90s where it was like black people do it this way mm-hmm. and white people do it this way mm-hmm. you know and <laughs> And the, the, it kind of had that a little bit of that yeah, thread yeah. in the in the book, which made me think, which made me think that unlike the comedians who usually were talking to a black audience and making fun of white people when they did it, that this was actually um, more for a, a general audience to both um, allow white people in that general audience to understand these specific elements of black expressive culture or black mm-hmm, material mm-hmm, culture right and also to um confirm or to emphasize for a black reader like this is who we are too right yeah. and also i think yeah. even that the author is the author's black and is sort of like steeped in this tour knows this right and knows what this is so that leads me to to think the answer to your question crystal is that the audience here is a much broader audience in that yeah. it includes, mm-hmm. as you say, mm-hmm. Adriana, mm-hmm. The, the, there is the um, assumption of a white gaze in this book, that, yeah. that white white eyes will be looking at the characters in this book and that in some ways the black characters need to be explained. It's different from Dread Nation because she was explaining a whole world right. that, was, yeah. that was alien Different's, to the yeah. reader, right? Yeah. Right, right, right. Right. I, I yeah. think the parts where I mm. forgot about that, like the parts with Chris are especially marked because then <laughs> the tourism becomes really patent, right? But um, I really loved the moments when Star is negotiating her relationships with her brother, Seven, yeah. or yeah. with yeah. her with father, Kenya, right? or yeah. with Kenya, mm-hmm. yeah. right? Like, But there's something really like, you know, these family relationships that are yeah. fraught um, when it's not about... But some of that becomes about how black am I? Yes. Right? Like, especially, I think, with Kenya. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is why I think for me it was about oh, these male-female relationships with brother mm. and father that seemed more intensely, like, mm. finding home as opposed to defending home. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I feel like the relationship right, in a way that I actually appreciated. Yeah. Um, and I feel like yeah, it's a good way absolutely. Which, and I think maybe, maybe it does with her parent and, like, um, her brother, too. But I feel like that, to me, was sort of the place where I think they both were able to see each other differently towards the end of the book than I think they were at the beginning. Um, so yeah, I guess I want to go back to, um, well, sort of actually the comment that you made about Mr. Lewis, right? Kind of about, you know, when he's like, and by the end, like the community kind of comes out, you know, so in some ways I feel like, right, there's a lot of discussion about how, you know, if we don't want people like calling the police, like part of what we want to have is sort of these community resources, right? That we turn to in community ways in which we're dealing with Right, elements that are in our community that maybe we don't like. So I feel like maybe there was like a moment where that could have happened in some ways, right? I mean, it turns out that they're just like talking to the police and that's gonna mm-hmm. end up being the community solution. But I feel like there was like that moment where I was like, so we could have imagined, right, in some ways sort of a different kind of ending, right? Where we still like speak life to kind of some of these alternative ways in which we can think about uh, alternatives, alternatives to like policing or alternatives to like, and some of that happens in there. I mean, there's like her dad who like, calls like the meeting of like the different gangs in town and oh, tries yeah, to like a, have a conversation so right. I was like there's like hints of like how do we think beyond 
the police, right? Like, how do we mm-hmm. think beyond sort of what do we do with? Um, don't you do you think that? I mean, thinking of that specific example, yeah, and then sort of connecting that to their decision to move to the suburbs, right. that there's when you when you think, okay, it could go that way. I mean, he. This is a, I'm, I was kind of frustrated with the, his character and the treatment of his character because mm. he seems to be really committed to let's change this neighborhood. neighborhood right. Let's do the things that it takes to make this a better place. And the mom, of course, is like, it's dangerous, let's leave. Right. And in the end, they decide, they come to this kind of like rationalization, which is, let's leave, but we'll rebuild the store. Door. Like, it's okay, as long as you want it to be better, you can just do whatever you want to. Wherever which seems to be, yeah. And that seems to be like an underlying mm-hmm. um, moral of the, of the story. You know, uh, on mm-hmm. page um, 427, they're kind of all talking and... Um, this is in the middle of the page. Uh, Mama beckons me to look at her. And they're talking about the, the aftermath of, his, of the decision where he's he's not been brought up on charges, 115. And, um, the decision may have not been right, but it's not your fault. Remember what I said. Sometimes things will go wrong, but the key is to keep doing right. Um, now, Star pushes back on that. Khalil still deserved better than mm-hmm. that. Yeah, he did. But... I mean, to me, like that's actually the moral of the novel is that things will go wrong, but you just try to do right, which is mm. not about structural change. Uh, exactly. Right? Exactly. It's not mm. about real transformation. It's, right. it's basically just about just survive. Right. Mm-hmm. And things will go wrong and you just try to do what's right, right mm-hmm. and just keep going forward. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Endure. That's, yeah, Endure. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's a that's a super conservative morale. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And I also think about that that problem when we um, when we encounter um, Seven's mother and she makes the sacrifice to get the kids out of the situation right. because she knows that if they stays, then not only will she get beat, they'll get beat. So she's like, you know, everyone leave, and I'll just, you know, be king's punching bag, yeah, punching bag. bag right? right? And so there in 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 this world there's always going to be a victim like there's always going to be someone who needs to be sacrificed um and then there still isn't even any guarantee that anything will change um yep yeah yes i think that's a problem yeah i mean that's not that's not like this vision of a transformed right future with possibilities right and even even Star's own, what I think is, I think we're supposed to understand as like burgeoning sort of activism Mm -hmm. is not, I mean, she hasn't, she's committed to doing something, I think. And and really it's basically just speaking her truth, right? Right, Mm -hmm. yes. That's Mm -hmm. almost like that's enough. Like get on top of the car and say what really happened. happened, And that's enough. Right. But I think we all know that that's only the beginning. Right, you're speaking mm-hmm. your truth is a first step, and maybe I'm mm-hmm. overlooking the way that the book suggests otherwise. I mean, to me, it looks like yeah. I, well, no, I just thought the ending was interesting, right? So maybe I'll just read the ending. Is okay. that okay? Sure. Or do you want to say your? Go for uh, it. I mean, I have more of a global comment about the ending. Okay. Uh, so, so maybe we'll read the ending, and, and then you can see exactly. It. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this is how it ends. Once upon a time, there was a hazel-eyed boy with dimples. I called him Khalil. The world called him a thug. He lived, but not nearly long enough, and for the rest of my life, I'll remember how he died. Fairy tale? No. But I'm not giving up on a better ending. It would be easy to quit if it was just about me, Khalil, that night, and that cop. But it's way more than that, though. It's about Seven, Sakani, Kenya, Devante. It's also about Oscar, Ayana, Trayvon, Rakia, Michael, Eric, Tamir, John, 
Azil, Sandra, Freddie, Alton, Philando. It's even about that little boy in 1955 who nobody recognized at first, Emmett. The messed up part, there are so many more. Yet, I think it'll change one day. How? I don't know. Mm. When? I definitely don't know. Why? Because there will always be someone ready to fight. Maybe it's my turn. Others are fighting too, even in the garden, where sometimes it feels like there's not a lot worth, white, uh, worth fighting for. People are realizing and shouting and marching and demanding. They're not forgetting. I think that's the most important part. Khalil, I'll never forget. I'll never give up. I'll never be quiet, I promise. Mm. So, um, so let me first say that when I first read the book, um, I was doing another experiment. I got it on Audible, <laughs> um, which turned out to be exactly the wrong kind of experiment because um, I you know, started it. I was driving, uh, got to the end of the first chapter when Khalil is killed by the police. And I'm basically like in traffic going, what the fuck? Uh. What just happened? And I couldn't believe that the book started off mm. already with like looming danger at the party and then suddenly the death of Khalil. Mm -hmm. um, and the first chapter does a really good job, I think, of getting you to care about Star and Khalil, about making them real people, right? So that his death matters. It's not like a first mm -hmm. chapter death where you brush it off. Mm. It's not just structural. Um, so the end of the novel, um, I mean, I really want to agree with Todd that there's a lot that I, I like about this as a young adult novel. I um, got to the end of the novel and of course I was crying because I, I'm very sensitive and I am very empathetic. Um, and Star is a character who we do see grow, right? Mm -hmm. So this last chapter, there are things that she does concretely. She blocks Hallie, right? She erases her telephone number. She decides to basically not try to be friends with someone hateful. Mm -hmm. She re-engages her past and decides she's not gonna be ashamed of where she came from. Um, and she decides that her voice matters. Right, um, and I think the thing is that as uh, as a young person, this this is a really powerful ending, and as an adult, it feels really painful because we know that these steps that she takes don't at all affect structure, as Todd was saying. Right, I well, Anita's being like the. Uh, I just also feel like which young people does this feel powerful to? Right, I'm thinking about all the young people in Ferguson who were on the streets, but also organizing. They were meeting, they were meeting for hours right. and organizing things, right? So yeah. it's like, yeah, park, maybe as adults this feels. Yeah, or the Parkland kids. So I'm mm. like, which adults are we talking, I mean, young yeah. adults and which yeah. young people are we talking about? Because there are a lot of young people who are actually speaking up in really powerful ways that it's not just about an individual voice. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Right? Well, that's, yeah, I mean, I totally agree with that. I mean, I think, again, and, and I definitely want to, I don't want to sound like a hater, you know, on this book because... The hate you give. <laughs> <laughs> because like Adriana was saying, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's powerful. It's emotionally affecting. Um, that, that first... I mean, if I think about, you know, the scene, the, the comparative scene in um, Sing Unburied Sing, right, where they are pulled over mm -hmm. and the police points the gun at the boy I mean that also was super harrowing yeah. but it took mm -hmm. three quarters of the book to build up to that, that point right? Right, right and she does this in like the first 30 pages yes. or something and yeah. it is pretty uh, um, shocking and, and affecting right yep. yeah yeah um, so there's there's things like that uh, but on the other hand I think and again maybe this is due to what can you tell a young adult audience to do Maybe it depends mm. on how do you think about young mm. adults. 
I mean, I would mm-hmm. like to push them to be as radical as they want to be. Mm-hmm. Where this book um, seems to be very much concerned about the dangers of doing these things and the consequences of doing these things and what will happen if you if you become too radicalized or if you do too much or you push too much mm-hmm. to the point where she's basically saying like I don't know what I can do yet I'll I'm gonna do something but it's not a full-throated like you know and can I just add to that like so how does she get into her actual activism right when she finds her voice there has to be an adult there who basically right. says, hey, have you ever thought about doing this, mm-hmm. right? right. Um, and I mean, maybe that's, you, you know, like I go back and mm-hmm. forth. Is this an honest depiction? And maybe, you know, for, like I was probably a teen more like Star than like the Parkland teens, honestly, mm-hmm. right? But, um, yeah. but at the same time, like I can't help but feel like narratively, yeah. right, in terms of the mm-hmm. story that's being told. It's telling a story that's still guided by these adult voices yeah. um, yeah. in ways that, yeah, that seem like they, it could have been more. I also yeah. think that if you sort of add up the depictions of activism in the book or uh, political commitment, that more often than not, those depictions are of um, either insincere or unsuccessful or almost uh, activism that's sort of of a bygone era. Like yeah. one of the things what about Maverick mean? is like he's obsessed with the Black, the Black Panthers, Black Panthers Black, and, right, right. and it's portrayed as if almost as if that was she even talks about it that way like we he makes us recite the right. 10 point plan right. 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 but it's kind of like old fashioned stuff and right. I don't know if in the end she embraces the sort of radical nature of that in an explicit way in the text maybe mm-hmm. she, she will yeah. think that she does but there's that scene where the kids walk out of the school and of course they're only doing it to get out of right. class, yes. right? So mm-hmm. it makes it seem as if, you know, radical activism by young kids is not sincere. Mm-hmm. That it has some other sort of motivation. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I just think that seems to happen throughout the book that um, that sort of uh, performed radicalism is, is to be something to be suspicious of. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if that's just me because of you know how I was reading the book from the beginning, yeah. but I wish it had more of a of a kind of flavor of the Ferguson kids. And it, what we basically mm. know is happening all over the country right now. Right. That in in many high schools there are kids who are politically engaged, who are active, who are doing things that um, are are changing things. Um, and not that mm. they're just walking out of school because they want to miss class. But also. It's the kids at the white high school cool. walking right, out of class right. because they just yeah. want to miss class. So it was actually but the Parkland go- kids are white, white kids. But they're, right? they were going out because something that directly affected right. them, right? So yeah. I think she was kind of yeah. making a point about like how like the white kids at her school like don't actually particularly care that a young black kid was killed right. not mm-hmm. so far from their high school, right? So I think that was kind of the point she was making. Yeah. But what? But I feel like it would, you know, because she's sort of taken away Star from her neighborhood and into the school, like that is the setting that we see her in most. Yeah, like right. what would it be if she was in a school in, in the her, neighborhood? In neighborhood? Right. Yeah. Mm. But then we wouldn't get the possibility of this, you know, white gaze that right. can help us understand yeah. her discomfort with yeah. her very own neighborhood. Right. Right, and I think that's kind of even in that ending. I I was sort of like, okay, so she ends with this like you know um, at the garden where it doesn't um, others are fighting too. Even in the, even in the garden, right? Sometimes it feels like there's not a lot worth fighting for. And I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah, Crystal, exactly. Do you want to translate your face into words? Well, I mean, I think, 
I've been sitting here as we've been discussing. I've been reading a little bit about Angie Thomas's <laughs> background. Yeah. Because I'm trying to figure out. I'm trying to figure out. You know how much of her kind of personal experience, especially when. When I think someone mentioned that, you know, she went to a predominantly white school um, and that could potentially be shaping how she's writing this. And so um, I found I confirmed that she did go to predominantly white Bellhaven University and she was the first black student to graduate in creative writing. Uh, she identified that that experience has influenced her writing. Um, she she speaks about how it's one of her college professors who suggested her experiences are unique and that her writing could give voice to those in her world who had been silenced and whose stories had not been told. Her kind of citing um, Tupac as an influence um, and how she really wants to, uh, she thinks is important for the white community to listen to the grievances mm. of the Black Lives mm -hmm. Matter movement. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And so that, that helps. Yeah. And so that's what I've been sitting here thinking about in terms of um, the questions that we have been posing about this book um, and, and kind of seeing how uh, her her personal experiences, you know, is 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 actually is she star? <laughs> Right, mm -hmm. you know, um, and it, and if we think of and if I think about the connections between Star and herself, um, the fact that I mean I wonder about what Angie Thomas thinks about radical activism of youth. Of youth. Has she ever been involved in rap? Perhaps she can't imagine, you know, the radical youth that we're seeing now because she wasn't one. Especially since we now know that this book is written, you know, a lot from her her own experiences. I'm not sure. Um, so that's what I've been thinking about as I listen to this. So when Todd mentioned earlier the Black Panthers, and I realized that I'd kind of forgotten that thread, mm -hmm. um, and so I searched because that's the great thing about Kindles. Ah, nice. Um, the last time that the 10-point program is mentioned is on page 320, okay. which is just a little bit over halfway through the book, in fact. Um, and it's when she's still trying to decide mm. whether to go to the courthouse. So it's on page, mm -hmm. I think it's your 320. Yeah, it's 320. Okay. She says, um, so why are you mm. going to be quiet, Daddy asks. And Star says, not to him, just in her head, because the 10-point program didn't work for the Panthers. Huey Newton died a crackhead, and the government crashed the crushed the Panthers one by one. By any means necessary, didn't keep Brother Malcolm from dying, possibly at the hands of his own people. Intentions always look better on paper than in reality. The reality is I may not make it to the courthouse in the morning. And there's something like both really intimate and lovely about recognizing like that that um, that kind of activism is hard. That kind mm -hmm. of commitment to your community, that kind of fight for justice is um, it takes a lot of strength. Right. But that's also the last time it gets mentioned. Mm -hmm. Right. And it doesn't come up at all again mm. um at least named by the black panthers so that's yeah. the search i used panthers mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um so i feel like there's a way in which even narratively um the the book seeds this kind of potential revolutionary activism mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. and goes into a more kind of like well let's do what we can on an individual basis let's mm -hmm. right. let's survive make do mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and i think even mm -hmm. that 
that notion of the of the Black Panthers or Malcolm X or Stokely Carmichael or other you know sort of radical figures of the '60s, which is pretty popular to do now, is to see that as uh, you know sort of romantic revolutionary fervor right. or something like that. I think it's inaccurate um, because I think <laughs> what. but i I think it's inaccurate because i mean while all those things are true about huey newton and about malcolm x those people met the fates that they did precisely because of how dangerous they were and because of how many forces and resources were arrayed to stop them yes right right the whole right power and resources of the federal government right. was yep. needed to stop them. Right. Fred Hampton in Chicago was so dangerous yes. right. that they had to kill him in his sleep yeah. to stop him. Right. Yeah. Right. right. So, right. I mean, I think to think of it the way that she describes it, mm-hmm. and she's young and she doesn't really maybe have the full picture of it, I suppose. Star. Maybe that's yeah. part of it. Yeah, star. But I think it's to miss out the, on the... Um, the, 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 the real true power of those movements as collective yes. revolutionary movements. Right? And I would, I mean, I would go even, oh, maybe we don't want Angie Thomas to listen to this podcast, but I would. <laughs> we still even, love you, Angie. Uh, I mean, I would say because I think also to create, you know, to create a contemporary, uh, a contemporary novel where this is the, this is the possibilities for, the activists, to me, that shows a lack of understanding, as you were mentioning, uh, Todd, of the real intricacy and possibilities of the civil rights and black power movement. I mean, how can you, and it, you know, how can you, I'm, I'm, so how can you kind of just so quickly dismiss uh, the Black Panthers mm-hmm. as, you know, not being successful without understanding all that they've done. How can you simply dismiss the lessons of the civil rights movement? To me, this speaks to, you know, an an understanding of the civil rights movement that's based on that predominant master narrative, that predominant, you know, top-down, charismatic, you know, leader understanding of the movement. Because... Exactly, right. And so... um, yeah, so uh, so it, it totally speaks to kind of a, a unnuanced understanding of um, of black resistance across the twentieth century um, to so easily and quickly discount um, the um, these movements and and it, I mean and, and also in thinking about kind of you know the fact that this is again going to be made into a movie it's written for a broader audience is this book doing a disservice? to understanding black freedom movements by being so easily um, dismissive. And I think what she's trying to do is educate, like when she, right. you know, talks about like, you know, the 10 point platform and the blah, 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 blah. Like she's trying to educate. Yes. But then she says, oh, but that didn't mean anything because they all died. Well, why did they die? Right. And, it's, it's and what did they achieve? And w- right. 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 Both before their death and in their death. Exactly. Yeah. Can we turn this around one really quick second? Because mm-hmm. I am struck, like listening to you talk, and we started out thinking about black girlhood, mm, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and what do we, you know, how does this position and understand black girlhood? Why is it circled around a girl in the first place, right? Why do we get her voice? Given the fact that it's in so very many ways, it is a novel about masculinity and black masculinity and black precarity. Well, and right? I, think, I think that's where Angie Thomas is trying to intervene on perhaps like the say her name movement within Mm. Black Lives Matter, right? That because the conversation has been so 
predominantly focused on the impact of police violence against young black men, right? That she then wants to insert the voice and the perspective of, of black women, black girls um, through, you know, you know, having a black girl travel alongside a, a young black male who's, um, you know, who's been murdered. Um, Cause she can't, she can't, mm. <laughs> she can't murder the black girl, right? She can't make this be a Sandra Bland, you know? That's so, a fascinating thing to me though, yeah, right? It cannot be about no, the black true. girl's death. Why it not? has to be about mm, the woman mm, watching mm, black male yeah. death mm. and narrating after that death. Mm. And there's something like that feels, huh. yeah, Angie Thomas maybe should not listen to this one. <laughs> like, because, no, I, I, but I'll be honest, okay, I did read this the first time and I thought it was really good. And it's only actually like kind of in the conversation yeah. that I come more and more to this critique, which is, um, there's something almost, um, what's the word I want, uh, where you're observing people, but they don't know you're observing. Um, voyeuristic. Voyeuristic, thank you. Jinx, yes. That was, thank you so much. About the position that Star is put in. And in part, I think it feels voyeuristic because of the way she increasingly kind of cannot figure out what collective action might look like, what community might look like, what any kind of institutional change might look like. And not only voyeuristic, but I was thinking about your point about it's an intervention, but it's an intervention that still puts her in a position of witness rather than also actually witness being also in danger, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like she mm -hmm. also, and her black body, is in danger of being violated by the police, yeah. being killed Points by the police, the gun being, at her, right? Right. Points right. Gun at her. Yeah. So I think it's kind of interesting that it's like, yes, it's an intervention, and that we get to right see her perspective, and it's a young woman's perspective, but it is as mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. okay, I'm going to support right the men who are going right. to face the like quote unquote real violence or something right. like that, right? And, and the exactly. violence that the black woman does face mm -hmm. is from a black man, right? Right. So, yes. Mm -hmm. From King, yeah. right? And yeah. Like, yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I want to ask a question which takes us a little bit off of this, but goes back before this is, I think that it's, okay, I, I think that I'm wondering sometimes about the critiques that I'm making on this book and if if it's because of the, the fact that it's a YA novel and the way that a YA novel might deal with issues mm. differently than a novel that I'm used to reading. Mm. And, but then I think, so when I think about what yeah. she says, uh, the character says about the Black Panther, or what the character says about any particular thing in the book. There's a way in, you know, a good book that a character can have an opinion, but the book can also have an opinion, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I realize the star is the main protagonist of this novel, and so what she says carries a lot of weight. Right. But I don't mm -hmm. see the ways in which that the book pushes back against her position in the novel. So right. I, I'm taking what she says to be basically the, the position of the book. Right. right. That's the book's argument. Right. So if I, I, I'm wondering if Angie Thomas were sitting here besides wanting to hit us with stuff, she <laughs> might say, well, the whole book yeah. is not what Star said. And then I would say, but I don't see the evidence. Like as a right. reader, I'm mm. taking what Star says because the book itself or the other sort of elements of the narrative don't seem to be pushing back against right. other characters even. I'm trying to think right. if yeah. there are other characters you know, who are saying No, I think this narrative is so channeled through Star. Yeah. It is, it is. Which I think makes me think about her point about like, you know, if her point is to like educate, right, mm -hmm. to white communities and if this book is like for white communities, like what is the message that they're getting? And I think going right. back to like, we were having a quick discussion about the Fred Rogers documentary, but just this notion of like how much education, how much empathy, 
like how much longer, right, do we need to kind of keep doing that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so that, mm-hmm. you know, white people see black people as humans and like white people see, you know. Right. So I just feel and, like. And again, to press my point, yeah. how do we get people to see black men are human through black women's right. eyes? Right. I mean, this is a really, like, when you think about, um, I, in some ways, like, the desperation, right? Like, how do I demonstrate black male humanity? I need a black girl mm-hmm. who herself is in between worlds, <laughs> who can kind of, like, show people. Mm-hmm. Literally his hu- sometimes. His humanity. Yeah. But, in right, like, in order to do that, she also defends her own humanity. Right. Right. Yeah, I think of what was uh, Trayvon Martin's friend that ends up testifying. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah that girl that's dead. Mm-hmm. I can't remember yeah. her name. I think it was Rachel, maybe. I but know who co- you're talking co- about, yeah. I, I was pretty much finished. I mean, like, it, that is, like, narratively, I guess, is what mm-hmm. I'm trying to point to. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, mm-hmm. it's this really mm-hmm. tortured and um, dangerous, mm-hmm. um, oh, what's, oh, I can't think of the language for it. But it's mm-hmm. like there's a series of doors that this white gaze has to pass, or that she is imagining, that the narrative is imagining the white viewer has to pass through mm-hmm. in order to be able to perceive humanity. Channeled through. Yeah, channeled through. Rachel Gentile, that was her okay. time. Cool. Yeah, and I feel like, you know, even sort of your, like, I think the portrayal of the community itself, right, of Garden, mm-hmm. and sort of like, if that, I don't know, right, I feel like there's a lot of ways in which I read right young people's writing about their own communities and it's i mean not that they don't talk about the challenges right but they talk about the assets they talk about the resources right. they talk yeah. about mm-hmm. and she does in some ways right I but i feel so. like some of the richer descriptions of sort of you know even like black culture happens right. at like uncle carlos's house right because right? right. it's right. like safe there to like even right. have right. you know a, a party and sing the stevie wonder version of happy birthday right, right. so it's just like, it's just interesting to me, like, that's where it's located in this, like, place where the community in some ways isn't. Right. And I think it wants to. I mean, it definitely wants to. I mean, if there are there are good things about this novel, I mean, definitely yeah. those things, one of those things is first the portrayal, the presence of real, of black characters. Right. Yeah. And the portrayal and presence of black families. Mm-hmm. Um, even mm-hmm. though we have like some super dysfunctional black families that are, to me, in some ways, a little cliched, but mm-hmm. um, right. But that's but that 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 is definitely there. And then the last thing I wanted to just sort of pose to you guys, which is on and maybe it could be a wrap up question. Yeah, is as I think about all this stuff, and particularly within the, the framework of the young adult novel, is it? And, and I think about what you said about uh, Mr. Rogers too. <laughs> um, that was off. We weren't recording that, but uh, but is it the case that young adult a young adult novel or literature for young adults is basically inherently almost always going to be conservative rather than like radical? I feel like that's a longer conversation because I would say no. Okay. But I do wonder whether young adult fiction that is written to represent people of color. Mm. Is inherently but also so that's, maybe okay. we should try and find some young adult literature written by young adults. Hmm. Oh. So if you guys listening I know was, of I any, was, you know, I, s- I saw a website the other day that had I don't know if it was by teenagers, but it was by 
younger authors, maybe okay. in their early 20s yeah. or something like that. Okay. Because okay. I worked for a newspaper when I was in high school that was a newspaper for teens, which is oh. by teens. Yeah. And we did have adult so cool. editors, but like all the writers were teens, right? So we were kind of speaking our truths to like other people right. our age. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't like filtered by that. So I'm just curious about some of that. Mm-hmm. Right. Also, right? Yeah. Um, that would be awesome. If yeah. our listeners mm-hmm. know of anything, please let us <laughs> let know on our know. Facebook page. But I think we could find Yeah. Um, um, and actually, maybe that's a good place to sort of wrap this up and actually talk about what else we're reading. And I don't know if anybody wants to start us off. Yeah, I can start. I have been reading um, lately or making my way this summer through kind of a trilogy of Zora Neale Hurston. And so uh, many people may know that um, her book, Barracoon, uh, the story of the last black cargo came out earlier this summer. And so um, I read that. And now I'm making my way. I'm kind of reading simultaneously her autobiography, Dust Tracks on a Road, and then Valerie Boyd's biography, Wrapped in Rainbows, to kind of think about, you know, how Zora narrates her life and how Valerie is understanding um, Zora Neale Hurston's life. But if you haven't had a chance to read uh, Barracoon, um, it's a really, a really hard, hard account. Um, but I think it's certainly worth. Um, checking out. Thanks. So I am reading um, N.K. Jemison's amazing Broken Earth trilogy. Mm. Um, the first book is the fifth season, then it's The Obelisk Gate, and then The Stone Sky. So I'm in the middle of Stone Sky. I have not finished. Do not send spoilers. Um, <laughs> this trilogy is all really... All about spoilers. <laughs> not, not right yet, now. Not <laughs> um, but I am going to make a case for us to do this at some point. Maybe next summer you all could read the trilogy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really rare I have found um, you know we read Octavia Butler's our first book and it's a kindred I would call kind of light speculative fiction you know right like it's got that little bit of oh magic or who knows how that happened that she got sent back to slave times right Mm -hmm. but um, fifth season the Broken Earth trilogy is just incredible it's a completely different world Mm. a completely different organization and yet, um, Jemison is really intent on exploring questions of um, slavery mm. um, and bondage. How do certain people become uh, used as tools, mm. right? How does this kind of dehumanization happen? Mm. Um, how does society, like when it's striving for certain kinds of technological or capital goals, like what happens along mm-hmm. the way? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really, and it has, I was telling Anita in a very different conversation, that the very first book reminds me actually a lot of Toni Morrison's Beloved. Ah. Um, it has um, this incredible tripartite um, narrative where you get three different voices and towards the end, I don't want to give too many spoilers for this, but you discover that they're connected in a way you did not know. Mm. Um, and there's a sacrifice that's made very much like the sacrifice in Beloved and for similar mm. reasons. Mm. Um, so it's it's been such an amazing ride. I cannot recommend mm. it highly enough. Okay. Thanks. Well, you made me think of when you mentioned that trilogy, another trilogy that I would definitely suggest to you which is the the Venti trilogy by mm. Nettie Okafor, mm-hmm. yeah. and um, I just finished the final book, The Night Masquerade, mm. uh, maybe last the month before last, and uh, it's like oh so good. The first yeah. book is like one of my favorite books I've ever read. It's so great, and it, it's basically about a um, a, a teenage girl um, from in, in Africa in the deserts of Africa. This is Who Fears Death. 
Well, no, no. She, that's another one of her books. Oh, she's got okay. all kinds of books. Oh, wow. She's okay. got tons of books. This one's called Binti. <laughs> okay. It's, it's a, like pretty they, short. They're pretty short. Like, they're novellas by um, Tor.com books. Okay. Um, and so uh, it, this is about a, a girl in, in the desert of Africa, and she travels to the most prestigious university in the universe, oh. and it's about her journey there. Oh. And then it's about, like, what happens to her, and there's lots of conflict, and there's lots of crazy stuff that yes. happens. But it's so good, and Binti won, um, won uh, the, is it the Nebula Award um, uh, and for uh, short fiction okay. a couple okay. years ago. Anyway, so read that. That's, that's definitely something. Okay. And then I'm going to say my other ones. So when I was reading uh, The Hate You Give, I was like, I, I gotta find another YA book about uh, police shootings to read, and I went and I read uh, Jewel Parker Rhodes' book, Ghost Boys, mm-hmm. which is um, in that book the main character, a young boy, gets shot, and then he comes back as a ghost, and he like observes his family, mm-hmm. and um, he only certain people can see him, and certain people can't, and Emmett Till is like his guide and um, sort of takes him around and shows him things. And there are all these ghost boys who are boys that have been shot who are kind of always in the background. Um, it's interesting. I mean, I thought it's going to be way better than it's, it's, it's good. It has its problems, too. Um, and that made me think about the whole thing about, you know, YA literature. Um, I'm also right now reading uh, Black Water Rising by Attica Locke, which is a, a black mystery novel and i haven't started reading this one but this is the next book i'm gonna read is the heritage by howard bryant the heritage it's called black the subtitle is black athletes a divided nation and the politics of patriotism it's supposed to be really really good sounds very serious Mm -hmm. serious, it sounds really on point though yeah yeah you know i like sports i like serious so that's what i'm reading thanks todd um i guess you just reminded me another book i guess if people are interested in why a literature that looks at police um, killings police brutality is how it went down by kate club and goon which kind of looks at a killing from like a variety of perspectives i think there's like 10 or 12 perspectives in there so just something to check out um but i just finished reading Luis Rodriguez's The Republic of East L.A., which is a collection of short stories of like a variety of characters living in East L.A. And I feel like this book really sort of captured why I tell my students to read fiction if they want to be good ethnographic writers, because I feel like he's so generous and vivid in his like descriptions of people that I feel like really good ethnographic work does that as well. Um, and you know, and you might not like one of the characters, but there's lots of characters, so I think you'll <laughs> like at least one of them. Yeah. Um, and just FYI, thank you, A, for listening. And our next book, and we hope to come out with this episode sometime in August, is Conrad Machado's Her Body and Other Parties. So again, look for that episode sometime in August. Thank you all for listening. And as always, please interact with us in some way, possibly on Facebook. Let us know what you've liked about the podcast, maybe... Well, I don't know. Maybe what you don't like, but stop you know. us! Stop us on the streets! Stop us on the streets! <laughs> yes, us yes. Rate Please. us on iTunes. Uh, yes. All that good stuff. But yeah, thank you all. Cheers. Bye. Bye. This wind rumbled episode of the drip was recorded outside on the patio at Cahoots Coffee Bar on Selby Avenue in St. Paul, Minnesota, where today we had one audience member, my man Rye Sickle Cow. In August, we'll be back with a new episode on Carmen Machado's collection of short stories, Her Body and Other Parties. Until then, hit us up on Facebook and be sure to like us on iTunes. Thanks for listening. See ya. And if the hippies and the yippies And if the hippies and the yippies And if the hippies and the yippies